Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton with a look at the early days of disco in New York when an innovative wave of DJs like David Mancuso and Francis Grasso created a dancer's utopia in Manhattan. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and it's actually time to techno roll. It's a special edition of our series on the book, Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. And I'm joined, as always, by Ryan Harkness. Ryan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. And today we're going to talk about disco roots, which for my money is one of the best chapters in the whole book. Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty cool seeing all of everything kind of come together, and 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 the impetus of of what I consider the modern uh, underground dance scene. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a totally innovative era, and it's one that historically has been overshadowed by the trend it set off. The next chapter we'll discuss disco, which is, you know, when you hear disco, you think Studio Fifty Four, Saturday Night Fever, the Bee Gees, Disco Duck, the Village People, Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers doing disco, and Frank Sinatra doing disco, James Brown doing disco, and all the litany of horrors that lead to the disco sucks backlash. But this is not our discussion today. We're talking about disco. Roots, which was the underground era, starting in the late 60s, moving into the early 70s and mid 70s, 
And this is the first time, let me give you just a quote from the book. This is, when the club DJ came of age, when the DJ became a star, even a god to his dance floor, when he learned the vocabulary of mixing techniques, and this was when the industry recognized him as the person best placed to create dance music rather than just play it. And apologies for all the he's, but from looking at the book and reading about the era, it seems like all the big DJs were dudes. Yeah, I mean, you got to imagine that it uh, it was pretty uh, it was pretty gender locked, and then there was the element of the uh, the big fact that a lot of this happened in gay clubs, uh, so women weren't even allowed into the clubs uh, for a, for a certain period of time. They were talking later on about Francis Grazzo, and he was one of the guys that actually kind of pushed to allow women back in. So it was very literally a boys club for a while. Absolutely. And Frank Francis Grasso is, is probably the guy we're going to be talking about the most. But a couple more quotes to introduce the air before we get to Francis. This is a good one. This is, this is, their case for disco disco was the revolution disco was freedom togetherness love disco was dirty spiritual thrilling powerful disco was secret underground dangerous it was non-blonde queer hungry it was emancipation and you know from reading this book and listening to the music it's clearly an exciting era and it makes makes you almost wish you could go time travel and, and experience early 70s new york and you know, we've talked uh, a couple episodes ago about the club DJ roots. We talked about Terry Knoll, who was one of the first to, to blend records together. And now we're going to talk about Knoll's successors. And, and one of the things that happened was that the kind of jet set clubs that had dominated the disco scene in the 60s, and disco meaning a club where people go to hear records rather than seeing a live band, not disco as in disco music. And in fact, much of the music Francis Grasso played was not what we would consider disco. Um, today, he was playing stuff more like hard funk, hard rock, a lot of Led Zeppelin, James Brown, Chicago, Santana, Cool and the Gang, uh, Dyke and the Blazers, Sly and the Family Stone. So it's very much a transitional era, but it seems like Francis Grasso was the man who became the first modern DJ. But a couple more notes about the social context, that this is an era that's coming on the heels of an era of rapid social change. The 60s had the civil rights movement, and the chapter starts with the Stonewall riots, which was when a group of gay men in a bar on the night Judy Garland died, got raided by the cops, and just had enough, and, and pushed back, and rioted, and fought for their rights and their dignity, and won. And so early 70s New York is is literally the best place ever to be gay, uh, at least in the modern era and and in the United States. And so there's a combination of new freedoms, not just gay liberation and, and black liberation, but women's liberation, sexual liberation. You had the pill, antibiotics that treated syphilis and gonorrhea. AIDS had not come along yet, so free love is definitely the, the ethos of the time. But it's happening in the context of the Vietnam War continuing and a massive economic dislocation from the uh, oil problems, you know, the the oil embargoes and the, and the peak of oil production in the United States. So it's a combination of a soundtrack of escapism, people dancing to get away from their troubles, but also a music for celebrating these new freedoms. So let's get into it. And they, they focus in on Fra- Francis Grazzo, who's um, the, they just, you know, pile on the superlatives about Francis Grazzo. And, it, and it, it's, 
It reminds me of studying like 19th century American music when you don't have recordings of Francis Grasso uh, mixing records. But, you know, we're, you're never going to be able to go back to the Haven in 1969 and hear what it was actually like to, to see this guy spinning or hear this guy spinning records. And, you know, here's some of the quotes. Didn't bend the rules. He changed the game. He stormed the profession out of servitude and made the DJ the musical head chef. Previous DJs thought of themselves as stand-ins for a band. Grasso saw records as vital components of his performance. Um, thoughts on all that? Yeah, I mean, uh, Grasso was basically the father of, of beat matching uh, when it comes to uh, like dance music and everything else like that. He was the first DJ to make headphones a key piece of equipment in the DJ booth. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, right now, like you're only a, as a DJ, you show up to a gig without your headphones, you're pretty much dead in the water. So it tells you how important that is, you know, um, without any equipment really to, to mix he managed to make make the mixes work, which is uh, really impressive. And uh, so technically, he's he's a very interesting guy to, to look into and, and and check out what he was up to, uh, how he was DJing. He was slip cueing records. Uh, so basically, he'd have the record on a slip mat and he'd hold it with his finger at the exact spot where the first beat would come in. And then he'd just wait for a beat on a 4-4 to come through on the other record and he would let it go. And there was no touching the side of the record platter to slow things down or pushing the record softly with your fingers. These old turntables sucked, like just in general, like you, there was no touching. So you had to get it right. You had to get it exactly right. There was no, there was no leeway to screw up. So the fact that, that he spent the time to get this right and perfect it and do as well as he did with it is you gotta be a certain kind of maniac to do that. Absolutely. And let's hear an example of beat matching. This is from a tutorial we found on YouTube. And this is what it means to beat match a record. an example of beat matching and that's literally you've got two turntables you're playing a record on one the crowd's dancing you want to introduce the next next record but you do not want the beat to stop this was grasso's big innovation terry Knoll had dabbled in this he had, he had blended records together but terry Knoll was all about you know when the record was over he'd stop he might throw on elvis presley and kill the mood on, on the dance floor because he wanted to grasso was all about keeping the beat going and and making this a performance and keeping people on the dance floor for way longer than they'd ever been on the dance floor before or at least you know going back to tribal around the campfire days and 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 with these analog records i mean remember this is a human drummer and so that if you're if you're playing one of these records on a modern setup you'll see the bpms changing almost every bar you know even the best drummers of the time, Clyde Stubblefield or somebody with James Brown, John, John Bonham with Led Zeppelin, their tempo is going to be changing all the time. It's not like a drum machine that's just mechanically locked into that perfect BPM. And and then you've got another record with another human drummer playing also uh, in varying tempos. And you have to get that one moment when they when they're both 
click and hit the beat at the same time, then you can turn the other record down and, 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 and turn the other record up. And, you know, some of the stuff they describe Grasso and others as doing is keeping a blend going for two minutes. And if you've ever tried to mix records, there's this horrible moment, you know, you can start with the beat synced. And if you keep both records up, there'll come a horrible moment where the beats are just off and it just sounds like a train record or, you know, something clattering down the stairs and, the, yeah, and the shoes in that, a dryer. Yeah. Shoes in a dryer. And and so, you know, you, it's very easy for anybody to tell when they're getting it wrong. And Grasso, one of the things they seem to like to do is tell these origin stories of DJs. And it seems like almost all these guys uh, got their chance through some fluke. And Grasso was a guy who was dancing at clubs and one night Terry Knoll took an acid trip and didn't show up for work on time. And Grasso found himself in the booth. And by 1.30 a.m. when Terry Knoll did come into work, Grasso is now the DJ and Knoll was fired. And you know, in the book they call it, there's never been a better example. This is the definitive passing the torch moment in DJ history. Because Terry Knoll had been you know, absolutely an innovator of 60s DJing. But Grasso picks the torch up and runs with it. And he's working in a club. You know, they they talk about the club that he's working at. He's working at a club called The Haven on the night of the Stonewall riots. But he actually started a club called The Sanctuary, which um, Al Goldstein of Screw Magazine called the first totally uninhibited gay discotheque in the USA. And, and, and it was a club that had been a straight club. Grasso was working there and... Uh, I think the manager absconded with with a barmaid and one hundred seventy five thousand dollars, and they had to change the club over. And a lot of clubs at the time found it lucrative to quote go gay, meaning that they changed over to a gay clientele. They fired all the female waitresses. Grasso was the only straight guy in the building. Went gay, but he was so uh, you know so talented that that he stayed there. And another thing we should mention is this is an era of absolute pharmacopoeia. I mean, people are doing a ton of drugs. It's And the stuff they're doing, it sounds like a Ramones song. I mean, it's two-and-alls, second-alls, quaaludes, a ton of downers, but they're also doing meth and they're doing LSD, and cocaine is going to be coming in through this whole period. So Yeah, it's a real A to Z. It's a fear and loathing in New York uh, kind of situation where, you know, I, I used to think that I was pretty knowledgeable about this kind of stuff, but reading through this chapter, you, you, you have no idea idea what 70% of these things are. Maybe they're just, uh, you know, blasts from the past and they're done with and, uh, and other stuff, you know, like it's a really big popper scene as well, which sounds interesting. I mean, uh, again, like, you know, <laughs> you, sure. you, you consider yourself an, an, an experienced uh, party goer and then you read this book and you realize that these guys had it up at 11 the whole time. Absolutely. And a lot of these drugs like tuanols and secondols and quaaludes were taken off the market. These were pharmaceuticals that were you know, made in factories by big, big pharma with ostensible purposes of you know, painkilling, relaxation, sleep aids, but they were widely misused. And when those misuses started resulting in a lot of corpses in morgues, those things were taken off the market. More likely when that resulted in a lot of bad PR and publicity, stuff uh, was taken off the market. But Let's talk about, you talked about a couple of his innovations, but he not only uh, was doing beat matching and beat mixing, and, and he was legendary for being able to hold a blend for two minutes or more, being playing the same two different records together for two minutes and keeping the beat in sync. And like we said, that is incredibly difficult. He's also doing the slip cue, like you mentioned, but then he would do phasing where you play 
two copies of the same record microseconds apart. And so you get this kind of echo effect or a fuller sound and uh, very much sort of like the flanging type stuff that the Beatles were doing in the studio a few years earlier. And so he's doing that and then he's doing mixing and I would kill to hear some of these mixes. There's, to my knowledge, one or two recordings of Francis Grasso's sets out there, but... And they sound like garbage. Yeah, it's terrible sound. Nobody nobody thought this stuff was was historically... Uh, relevant at all. And so the, the stuff wasn't documented, but, you know, apparently he's doing things like mixing the bridge of whole lot of love with Robert Plant moaning and groaning and, and ooing and aahing with, with the drum break from Chicago's uh, cover of the Spencer Davis's group, I'm a man, you know, and, and getting these crazy buildups and, you know, uh, you had to be there and we weren't there. So, so all we can do is, is tell you secondhand accounts of it, but he very quickly acquires some disciples, a guy named Steve DeQuisto uh, comes in, has another wacky origin story of of coming in and randomly getting put behind the, the boards. Uh, Michael Capello, who randomly, one of these two guys, I can't remember which one, randomly wandered into the club. Had never seen anything like it and immediately zeroed in on what Grasso was doing, that he heard it and recognized this is something totally special. I've got to learn how to do this. And so many of these 70s uh, origin stories, it's kind of like uh, with the radio presenters as well. He just happened to be in the radio studio mopping the floor as a janitor and the, they needed a DJ. And all of a sudden it's like right place, right time over and over again. It's pretty wild. Yeah, it was definitely an era of economic growth. I mean, even though – you know, from 73 on, you're going to have this economic retrenchment. You're still at the end of the post-war boom. And so prosperity and opportunity is 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 the rule of the game. And, and so many of these people seize the moment. And then another key player that they talk about is, is Alex Rosner that they call the sound system evangelist. And this was a guy who had built the first ever stereo disco sound system for the 1964-65 World's Fair. And then he went on to uh, build the first ever stereo mixer, just a homebrew kit he made for the Haven for Grasso and company, and then advised Bozak on their 1971 mixer, the first co commercially available mixer. And that's, that's the tool that lets you adjust the volume and the EQ on two different records. And Essentially, we're arriving at the two turntables and a microphone level of technology that is going to dominate dance music for the rest of the 20th century and on into the 21st. Yeah, and you can you can go online and you can you can Google the Bozak 71 mixer and it's this big, ugly rack mount rectangle. Uh, and uh, the, the really cool thing that everybody loved at the time was the fact that it was stereo and you go out and you listen to music in the past and it was all in mono and these guys had it all set up in stereo and you know uh, something as cheesy you know when you're when you're 10 years old growing up and you have a stereo system and you have the stereo knob and you just you know turn it left and right and it's you know something fun for a 10 year old but back then just uh, just messing with the pan was was enough to blow people's minds and then it also had separate EQs on each channel which is a big deal. There's a couple of DJs uh, later on in this era that were starting to cut the bottoms, cut the cut the lows, up the highs and stuff like that and bring them back in, playing with expectations. And then uh, the headphone cue knob, which was basically, this is what makes a good mixer, a club mixer, is that you're able to cue music up with your headphones without it playing out onto the main system. So, and then the booth monitor, which is basically, if you're playing in a, in a club, there could be, you know, 150 feet of cable between you and the sound system playing out into the club, which is, you know, a couple 
couple hundred milliseconds worth of delay, but it's enough to screw you up as a DJ. So you need a, a speaker that's directly wired to the mixer that, that gets you the music immediately. And that's the booth monitor. So the fact that it, this had the, the booth monitor and the headphone cue knob, those are like the two biggest changes from just like your, your, your regular run of the mill, either sound mixing board or just home mixer into like a club mixing DJ mixer. Yeah. And so one thing that we've seen over and over in the literal podcast is that these moments of technological innovation almost immediately lead to musical innovation. And something that Ted Joy in particular pointed out to me was that it's so often it's it's never people from the academy. It's not the upper classes. It's not the well-trained. It's the outsiders. It's the undercast. It's it's these freaks and randos like Francis Grasso, some dude who just happens to be behind the turntable one night. And lo and behold, he's a genius who absolutely seizes the moment and revolutionizes music. And it's almost always when nobody's looking. So let's hear a little bit of one of the surviving Francis Grasso mixes. Francis Grasso mixing uh, the turntables at some point in the 70s. And again, apologies for the bad sound on that. And sound snippets are particularly cruel for dance music because this is a music that really needs time to live and breathe. So by all means, search out that Francis Grasso uh, snippet on YouTube. It's, I think, a 50-minute uh, segment or 30 minutes, something like that. And, and, and sit and down. We'll, we'll have, uh, we'll, we'll have the, uh, the Let It Roll listener playlists as well in the, in the liner notes that you can go and check out. And we'll have some, some stuff lined up on various platforms for you to check out. Absolutely. And yeah, so you, you just kind of have to get the time, give it the time and, and imagine you're there and dancing and, and what it was like and hopped up on all kinds of crazy drug cocktails and, and going all night and maybe experiencing sexual freedom for the first time or just social freedom, being out and dancing and living uh, in New York in the early 70s. Um, absolutely the center of world culture at that point. And then we, we need to introduce, there's a bunch of DJs they talk about in this chapter, but there's really two that absolutely matter. And Francis Grasso is the first, and then David Mancuso is the second. And this is the guy who created a private club in his house that was called The Loft because it was an industrial loft. Again, this is back in the day when you could go to Soho or Tribeca and the Lower East Side and just rent a loft for basically nothing in real estate that you know for the last couple of decades has been essentially priced out of the market of artistic types and been, you know, the, the place where the, the wealthy of wall street go to remodel and live. But Mancuso was in the right place at the right time. The kid raised in an orphanage, um, by nuns and, and, and he credited that upbringing and it's not the upbringing you would, you know, in our cynical era of the, the way we think of the Catholic church in 2021 is very different from the way he told his narrative of, a beautiful communal experience where he was loved and taken care of by these kind-hearted nuns. And, and he kind of 
took that communal ethos to his music. And they say if disco had an angel, it was David Mancuso. And and he starts hosting parties at his house in the loft in 1970. It's never a club. There's no membership. There was admission. You had to pay like $2.50, and that would get you food, dance all night, um, and and some drinks, but not alcohol, I guess not. And, and he carefully curated his list of who he invited. And there's descriptions that say, you know, it was 60% black, 70% gay. We know that Patti LaBelle and Divine and other celebrities were there. But it was a real blend of people, of people from all classes, people of all races, people of all sexual orientation. And there was a real emphasis on warmth and friendliness. So it's very different than the sort of Studio 54 um, ethos that we're familiar with. It's very, or, you know, Grasso with the sanctuary, which, which sounds like it was just, you know, any dark corner that there was, there were, there were just people having sex in it and going mad and eventually getting shut down because they couldn't keep people like out of the hallways of the bu- buildings around it. Just, just in orgies. It sounded, <laughs> yeah. it sounded completely yeah. hedonistic to, uh, to the next level. And, uh, and then you have Mancuso who seems like he's very much more about the music. And if you wanted to run with him, you had to be there too you know obviously still drugs in the mix but uh, i think you know that was more considered you know uh, an aside to the music or a sacrament to the music and lsd is a big factor in this and it's it's less a coke and meth and downer scene than it is an lsd scene and that summer of love stuff is still fresh in the air and, and people like Mancuso had lived it and were able to carry on that tradition and change the music and very quickly he hooks up with alex rosner who rebuilt his sound system. But Mancuso pushes for things like these tweeter arrays, and those are the speakers that, that carry the high frequencies. And Roser just thought that was crazy, but Mancuso knew what he was doing and creates this beautiful sound system. And as he talks about, you know, this is Mancuso is one of those people who has theory upon theory about how to play music. And I, I think he passed away in 2017, but kept playing all the way through his life. The Loft had like a 30 or 35, 40 year run. Um, following him wherever he went and he was very big on you want people to hear the music not hear the sound system i'm not here to blow out people's ears i'm here and i'm not here to blow out speakers i'm here to convey the music to people so you know i had this recipe of a clientele of friends great music and great sound and a welcoming atmosphere you know down to the people he hired to to wait tables and serve the food and everything were friendly and and it's um you know, again, someplace I wish could have been there. It, it sounds it sounds incredibly great. And it was took a couple of years for it to start getting documented. But people like Vince Letty at The Village Voice and later Rolling Stone start writing about it, you know, fairly early. And this is one of those underground trends that literally takes over the world and it's easy to see why because everybody likes to dance everybody loves love positive music it's it's a good feeling it's not angry music it's escapist might be its vice but you know that was definitely in demand at the time and you know wow i wish i'd been there ryan thoughts on mancuso yeah, I mean, uh, the cool thing is uh, Mancuso is basically a student of Grasso uh, as far as learning how to DJ. Mancuso was doing his own thing, but Grasso taught him the ropes. And the two of them 
basically break down into the archetypes that you even see now for DJs, where Grasso uh, saw DJing as an enhancement. He was a mad scientist. He would throw things together. He would put like a, a Latin bongo track over another track and just let them play out on top of each other. While Mancuso is more of, he saw DJing as a conduit for the music. He was reverent of the original sound. For a while, he didn't even like the idea of mixing the records together back to back. And later on in his career, he went back to just playing it from first beat to last and then letting the next one go. So this is something that you still see to this day. So you have DJs who go nuts, messing with original tracks, mixing in and out in like a minute and a half. And then you've got people who are more purists who say the, the track was produced this way. I am here to play this track for these people and I'm going to let it play through. And the percentage that you have in the D in any particular DJ genre scene it really depends on the kind of music, like house music is a bit more chopped up than say trance music, which, which is more about letting it play through for five minutes before messing with it. But uh, that, that's basically the two, the two sides. And, uh, you know, all DJs kind of sit somewhere between more of a crazy grasso cutting up and experimental side. And then Mancuso, which is like, let the music speak for itself. Absolutely. Although, it's one of those things. Mancuso was sort of exceptional in this coterie because he lived into the 21st century. A lot of these people um, die in the 80s. Some of the first AIDS victims uh, in the world uh, were amongst these top DJs, and we'll mention a couple of them later. Grasso and, and his colleagues had relatively short lives, died around the turn of the millennium. You know, there's a story of Grasso taking just a vicious beating from some some gangsters at one point when he had tried to change clubs and, you know, was horribly disfigured. The photograph in the book of him, he looks like someone who was a boxer and he wasn't. <laughs> he was a pretty boy. He was a dancer. He was a musician. And these collisions of musicians and, and the underworld is something we've talked about endlessly on this series and, and disco in the early seventies was no exception to that. But because Mancuso lived a full life, he was able to do, there are lots of records of Mancuso, you know, curating sets or, or playing sets. But I feel like there's sort of a George Lucas revisionism there because he became such a ideologue about, you know, playing every record in full and denied the kind of mixing that he was doing at his peak. I feel like none of the Mancuso stuff that I've come across anyway, and I'm by no means an in-depth student of this era, so I'd love to hear from people who are, but I've found the Mancuso stuff that he curated later on doesn't reflect the way his music is described at its peak in the early 70s when he is literally on the avant-garde that is going to conquer the world when he was doing a hell of a lot of mixing and blending and and cutting back and forth and was very much on the cutting edge of of dj technicality so you know it's an interesting thing there but let's hear from our sponsors and we'll come back and continue the discussion and you know mancuso starts attracting attention fairly early on. I mean, his careful curation of his clientele matched his careful curation of his his records. And so there's always an element of star watching at his parties, even though they're sort of a everybody's welcome or everybody who's invited is welcome. It's it's a very welcoming atmosphere, but there's still a, oh my gosh, is that Patty LaBelle in the corner? Is that Divine? I saw Divine in that crazy movie the other day, you know, and, and that sort of star fucking aspect stays with disco all the way through and becomes kind of the dominant strain. 
But this new thing is is recognized quickly. And Vincent Aletti, they've got lots of quotes uh, from his 1973 article, and then he he zeroed in on it early. He says the best discotheque DJs are underground stars discovering previously ignored albums, foreign imports, album cuts, and obscure singles. These DJs are much closer to the minute-to-minute changes in taste than anyone else. And this is something that. I didn't realize about disco until I read this book, like up to this point, when you wanted to read a history of disco, they would talk about the music on the records. So it's a ton of talk about Gamble and Huff and Philly Soul and and late period Motown, particularly Eddie Kendricks with producer. I think his name was David Foster. And, and, and not that those people aren't important. And I hope to do episodes focusing on that stuff. But it gives you a very deceptive picture because the people in the studios were creating music. And they weren't there on the floors to see how it was going. It's very different than, than say, Count Basie in the 1930s or even Lawrence Welk in the 1950s where they're playing to dancers every night and they're up to the second on what's going on. I mean, you know, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones are coming up in these dance clubs and they're playing to punters who want to dance, who didn't come to see a band. And and they get to see what makes a crowd response. You know, what are the kids dancing to these days? Stax Records had a record store in the front office of their studio so they could play to the neighborhood black kids there in Memphis and see what kids were dancing to. That, those opportunities were gone to artists in the 70s who were ensconced in these studios. So it's the DJs who are there seeing, oh, people like the B side, not the A side. Oh, people really go crazy when I extend the strum break in the middle or, you know, let's loop that. And, and looping again is, is, a, is an anachronism. They weren't looping yet, but they're kind of looping. But they could see the parts of the records that made people go crazy and they could repeat them over and over again and play them. So this new kind of DJ emerges, who's part librarian, part antiquarian, and part archaeologist, because it's not about what are the record companies putting out. It's what are people dancing to? And, and you know, they find there's these legendary songs and records like The Mexican by Babe Ruth, which is a classic early disco track and becomes a classic early hip hop sample. You got uh, Mano de Gango's Soul Macasa, which becomes a hit record. Atlantic licenses and picks it up as soon as they hear you know that's getting traction in the clubs uh barabas who's a spanish cuban band uh they they import the lp you know it's it's a whole new era of the dj as the curator and, and it kind of mirrors some of the, the northern soul elements where basically the first time around all of this music just fell through the cracks and never got popular and then the djs took it and they and they played it and they made it happen and that was uh, that was again it's a, it's a, it's a pretty big deal for there for there to be a chance that these records you know uh, you know not succeeding they don't succeed they don't not succeed because there's anything wrong with the quality of it they just weren't heard or they weren't heard in the right context and these DJs take that music and they basically rescue it and uh, people people you know really start to appreciate that fact and they go to a bar or a club like this one of these discotheques and they understand that they're not going to be hearing the hits that you know they might want to hear they're going to be hearing what the dj thinks they need to hear and that's like a big uh, switch up in in kind of push pull where there's a push pull economy where before the audience wants what they want and the dj better play it and you know in northern soul you had those djs who felt you know by the end basically imprisoned by by the expectations of the crowd and unable to move outside of it while in new york you had a bunch of people who trusted their dj to take them where 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 they should go absolutely and there's numerous stories in this book about djs uh 
get into open conflict with the crowd. Um, I think it's uh, Rodriguez that they talk about the, who had everybody wanted to hear a particular Eddie Kendrick record. And he, for whatever reason, wanted to play a Gladys Knight and the Pips record and just keeps playing it over and over again. The crowd rebels and he literally tells them, shut up and dance to this record <laughs> and rides it out and and plays his record that he wants to play over and over again starts playing sound effects and then starts mixing in the rain the rain which was the title of the eddie kendrick song that people wanted to hear and when he finally does play it the crowd goes crazy and there's numerous uh stories about that there's another dj who was a white guy who's t- trying to take over for a black DJ at an at a overwhelmingly black club, people do not want to hear a white guy, especially a straight white guy at their club. And they, they boo him off the turntables multiple times. Finally, he comes back one night when the main DJ is out, sets up behind a tarp and plays, plays his ass off the crowd. You know, I guess they were curious at first, forget about it, just start dancing. By the end of the night, they've had such a great time. When the tarp finally comes down, they give the kid a standing ovation. And that's just the kind of thing I love. I love stories about music overcoming these social barriers and and the fact that people that are musically gifted can often serve as ambassadors between communities. And that was just the kind of stuff that happened over and over again. But let's hear a little bit of a David Mancuso mix. And uh, this is him playing Dinosaur L Go Bang. And that was David Mancuso at the boards doing Dinosaur L Go Bang. Um, Crazy stuff. And you can kind of get a picture. But again, you had to be there. And all we've got left are the records. It's very regretful that we didn't get to uh, get to enjoy any of that. It sounded it sounded pretty wild. And it sounds like kind of the birth of, you know, what what we ravers would have called the pluriculture. And uh, Mancuso, I think, is a is a key instrumental part of that as well, because uh, from the beginning, they really talk about, you know, him, him being very music based and him being very uh, positivity based and, and being positive with his music selection, building up the energy and with music, with lyrics that focus on positivity and love. Uh, one of the inter- most interesting quotes out of that entire chapter was when uh, Nicky Siano starts uh, a club called Gallery. And he, he's quoted as saying he wanted his club to have, you know, the caring about people and stuff like that, that Mancuso had done. So it, it kind of, uh, once again, underlines the difference between that sanctuary, uh, debaucherous sanctuary vibe that uh, that Grasso kind of was leading. And then Mancuso, who who kind of had it uh, had more of a focus on the people and 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 caring. And I don't know exactly like you see scenes. Uh, where, you know, you could have the same kind of music playing, but it's a completely different vibe because of the people who are in it. You, you know, just the the kind of scene that Mancuso cultivated is, I think, the reason why The Loft is still talked about in such reverent, uh, in such, with such reverence by, by everybody who was around at the time. Because uh, in a world where, you know, the gangs had infiltrated a lot of the clubs and there was obviously all of this social turmoil in the background, to have someone like Mancuso uh, shepherding a scene 
uh, with you know all of the, the the potential for abuse with drugs and and, and everything else like that uh, safely through, uh, you know that guy's that guy's considered you should be considered a saint. Yeah, it's a secular saint, and and they make that connection uh, to the towards the end of the chapter, and I want to wrap with that, but I'm going to come definitely come back to that. I mean, the the term takes on a the phrase takes on a frenetic holiness is used in the book to describe uh, labelle's what can i do for you and that was describing nikki siano at the gallery and they said that was arguably the first commercial club to bring all the elements together that he basically copied the loft but did it at a club that was open to anybody uh, who had the money to get in you know big sound system big money behind the club i think siano financed it himself again opportunities that are just not present haven't been present in in the american economy for a long time but back That's in the funny. day Ciano, Ciano apparently funded it with a, an insurance payout a friend of his got uh, I, they don't go into specifics about what kind of like if it was an injury or, or you know like his house burned down or something but a friend gave him ten thousand uh, dollars to open that club and uh, it's funny I was reading that because back in the early 2000s I ran a club where a friend uh, had a workers comp and he took like $20,000 and he dropped it into a club and we ran that club for for, for a, a summer of madness. So that, that kind of uh, uh, resonated with me. Yeah, so the opportunities uh, for grift and, and misappropriation of funds are not saying you're for anything illegal, but yeah, it's not yeah, exactly it was what pretty, people had uh, in mind. <laughs> yeah, I've seen several people come into those windfalls and I think putting together a disco club for a summer is one of the better uses of 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 a, of a windfall in a young person's hands than some of the things I've seen. But you know, there's this boom. The the Grasso and Mancuso are the founding fathers, but they don't bottle the lightning. And by the mid 70s, you know, there's 150 to 200 clubs in the greater New York City area that are are discos. And so the thing is getting big and bigger. Um, but there's still a lot of underground stuff and, and two characters that come into the story here that are going to be much talked about in later chapters that basically found entire chapters and subgenres of dance music going forward enter in the story at this point. I'm talking about Larry Levin and Frank, Frankie Knuckles, who start out at the Continental Baths. And this is a gay bathhouse. And this is something that's totally alien in the post-AIDS era, at least to my knowledge, um, where it's a sex club. They... People pay admission to go in. People live inside the thing. There are apartments and restaurants inside it, but there's saunas and baths, and it's basically a place to meet strangers and have sex. And, you know, it obviously came a cropper with the AIDS epidemic, but at the time, there seemed to be no reason not to do something like this. And it was this great explosion of freedom. And, uh, you know, as an aspiring hedonist myself, I can't help but feel a little bit of jealousy towards people who are able to live their sexual dreams to that extent. But, uh, you know, and, and at first, Knuckles doesn't want to even go in there. But Larry Levin moves in, starts playing, and Knuckles uh, eventually agrees to, to go in and check it out and ends up loving it and becomes one of the DJs there. He's kind of the backup DJ to to, to Larry there. And, uh, you know, this is the same place where Bette Midler got her start, doing a cabaret act with Barry Manilow on the piano. So, and I assume some of that was happening at the same time. So, again, I would love to have just had a minute to be in there and see these things going on. It's, it's, it's crazy. A very unique cultural moment. 
a lot of those bathhouses are are still open. Uh, well, not a lot, but some of those bathhouses are still open, not in the same format. Uh, in Montreal, there used to be a bathhouse on uh, St. Matthew, and we used to throw raves there on the regular. But the whole thing about it was you'd obviously be renting it and you'd be bringing in your own clientele. So there wouldn't be the kind of debauchery that you imagine might be going on otherwise. Uh, but, uh, to be able to go into the, some of those buildings, I played in a couple, I played in a bathhouse, uh, in New York and I played in one in, uh, in, I can't remember if it was, uh, if it was Chicago or if it was Detroit, but, uh, I've been into a couple of them and they're interesting. And, and you try to imagine, uh, Bette Midler in a, in a bathhouse and it's not all, you know, tile, uh, bath rooms there's usually multiple floors uh restaurants uh, as as uh, as Nate said there you know even apartments and stuff like that and, and uh I read that the uh, the one that Bet Miller played at the cabaret was on the top floor so they had you know different different levels that you could go to for different kind of vibes so it was almost kind of like a like kind of a super club vibe with the different with the different things that you could be doing at any given time yeah it's crazy to imagine and, and yeah Thinking about it, I'm, I'm aware we had some bathhouses in Austin. I know there was a, a, a record store called Alien Records uh, that was the dance music place in the 90s. And one of the clerks there had a reputation. They would always tease him that he had perfect attendance at the back bathhouse. So, you know, yeah, this stuff did survive the AIDS era. But I don't think that the post-AIDS bathhouse could be compared to the full-on 1970s hedonistic explosion. Um, I still just, can't even imagine. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, and obviously people paid a heavy price for that for the indulgence. Um, but God bless them; they lived uh, they lived wild lives while they were living. And um, and then there's other DJs they talk about. There's um, T. Scott at Better Days, who and I'm going to mispronounce this. Recherche. How do you say that? Recherche R and B. Um, I'm hoping you're Canadian French. Yeah, recherche maybe. I mean, if you want to there say it go. full full French, recherche. But I mean, they probably just called it recherche or something. Who knows? <laughs> and I don't know if if he used that term. But what does that mean? Uh, research. Ah. I see. I see. So deep R and B is 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 what he would be playing, and he was in, he was notorious for his long blends. And another guy who could take two records with analog drummers on these sound systems with no pitch shifter, no way to, to modify the speed to make the records match, and he could make the records two records playing at the same time for two three minutes. So you know heroic long blends, and and again. I imagine it was very much like seeing, you know, Charlie Christian busting out the first electric guitar at a jazz club, you know, 40 years earlier, or Jimi Hendrix experimenting with feedback in London in 1966 that, you know, I, I imagine some people realize that they're seeing Prometheus live right here in this club, and we're hearing things that have never been heard before in human history. And I find that just really exciting. And you know, I was one of these raucous kids growing up that just took hating disco as a matter of course. And some of that was my homophobia and some of that was my white privilege and, and white supremacy and all that stuff. But one of the things I've enjoyed about this project is you can try to step back and look at things objectively. And, and you can objectively see that this was absolutely innovation. Whether you like disco or don't like disco, you cannot deny that these DJs created something entirely new. And you cannot deny it's like the old Elvis album, you know, 10,000 10, Elvis fans can't be wrong or 20,000 Elvis fans can't be wrong or 10 million Elvis fans can't be wrong. What are there, hundreds of millions of EDM fans? 
this shit won. This was absolutely innovation and absolutely important. But let's hear um, our last song. And this is a remix that DJ Walter Gibbons did. And we'll talk about him after we hear the song. But this is a remix of Sandy Mercer's You Are My Love. Sandy Mercer's You Are My Love as remixed by Walter Gibbons. And Walter Gibbons is another one of these pioneering DJs. He's a guy who specialized in long drum breaks, very similar to what the hip-hop DJs that we're going to talk about in a couple episodes were doing, where he zeroed in on the drum breaks. They called his style jumble music. He liked to phase records, meaning playing two records, at the same record on two turntables, but slightly out of sync, so you get a bigger sound. He did a lot of quick cuts, a lot of live remixing of records. He would go home and edit tapes and play the tapes um, at the club for a while. He played with a, a live drummer, Francois Kavorkian, who's going to become a DJ. We'll talk about the next chapter. And he's also one of the first people to do a remix, which is when you actually get act- the DJ or producer gets access to the master tracks of the record and gets to re-record it, you know, remix it so that you take a, a three and a half minute record and turn it into an eight and a half minute record and you, you remix the bass and the drums and you resequence the parts and uh, it's, it's a revolutionary moment. Walter Gibbons was right on that cutting edge. Yeah, the most interesting thing that 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 he did that I read was he he would play uh there would be a you know the drum section from a track over another track but the the drum section he was playing was basically 12 seconds long so he'd play the 12 seconds and then he'd cut the volume pull it back manually with his hand and then let it go again and that's at that point it practically becomes turntablism on a on a on you know a, a larger scale and and that really blew me away, especially when you take into account, uh, you know, the technology that, that people that people are using, like turntables, even to this day, even the tech 12s that we have, uh, you know, they're they're finicky and they're they're, you know, getting getting the getting the, the needle not to skip and everything else like that. It's a it's a problem. So these guys are using these really wonky uh, devices. And, you know, you had a couple of guys, uh, Mancuso famously had one hundred and seventy five pound uh, record player that was specifically designed to absorb and and cancel out all of the feedback that was coming from the room and uh so you know there there was there was some there was some some push forward in that area but like the 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 equipment they were using was completely janky there was no there was no pitch control uh the 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 tables were were too floppy and wobbly for for any real manipulation of the of the speed of the record so to hear hear what Walter Gibbons was doing was really cool and as far as remixing goes you know this is the point you know he would go back and forth with one track you know two copies of the same record playing playing again and again because what the DJ realizes is three minutes just doesn't cut it. Two minutes doesn't cut it. All these, all these pop songs made for radio play too short. And this is where you start getting those, those, those extendo DJ mixes that are specifically made for DJs and that last eight minutes, 12 minutes, 15 minutes long. Yeah. And that's because they're serving the needs of the dance floor and the whole, and my apologies for the dog who's 
also obviously a big disco fan, but there, the whole three minute thing was an artificial technological constraint that goes back to the original gramophone wax cylinders and then the 78 RPM discs on shellac of the very early part of the 20th century. And obviously the 45, uh, seven inch 45 RPM single again has this three and a half, four minute limit before it just sounds really shitty. One of the reasons that they go to 12 inch singles, I want to talk about this more in the next episode is just because the sound sounds so much better. If you cram, you know, seven minutes onto a 45 RPM, seven inch, it's starting to sound crappy, but if you stretch, let it stretch out on a 12 inch, the bass is really fat. And, you know, so these, this technological constraint that had just become a matter of form, the, the, the three minute pop song, obviously there were short songs before, records you know um classical composers and others had uh, and folk songs and others had done songs but the three minute thing is a pretty arbitrary thing that had to do with technology and this is one of the first times that those chains are sort of pushed back on you know rock rock musicians have pushed back on it in the 70s bob dylan and like rolling stone and others but this is a period when the DJs just insist, no, dancers want longer tracks. They want to be out on the floor longer. And that's what Francis Grasso's whole revolution was, was let's keep the beat going. Let's not, it's not going to be a three minute dance. It's going to be a three hour dance. It might be a seven hour dance. And you get people into this orgiastic state, this trance state and, and amazing things happen. I want to mention a couple other DJs. David Rodriguez was the one he played at the Ginza and others, he was the one that we were talking about that that had the anecdote where he was insisting on playing Gladys Knight and the Pips when the crowd wanted to hear Eddie Kendricks. And just a le- another legendary pioneer is a super aggressive DJ. He was notorious for blowing out sound systems, notorious for dr- doing so many drugs at the turntables that, you know, as soon as he fell into the turntables and, and collapsed and ruined the whole show. But nonetheless, when he was on, he was on and, you know, a legendary figure that is in books uh, 40, 50 years later after his passing. And again, he was one of the first AIDS victims. So, you know, uh, say a little prayer for David Rodriguez and thanks for his contribution but like the book says, this is the birth of modern DJing, that this was a movement that blurred lines between religion and dance, and that clubs by the mid-70s had become places of worship. And they have a quote from Albert Goldman, and Goldman is somebody from the rock world who's infamous for these tell-all biographies he wrote about Elvis Presley and John Lennon that a lot of rock fans just took his personal attacks. But he's also remembered for a book about disco, one of the first books about disco. I think it came out in 78 and it's going for, you know, 300 bucks on Amazon. So I would love to track down a copy at some point, but they they quote Albert Goldman saying, the disco scene is a classic case of spilled religion, of seeking to obtain the spiritual exaltation of the sacred world by intensifying the pleasures of the secular. Highfalutin, but man, that's profound stuff. Yeah, the book, uh, this is where the book kind of gets more into the mantra of talking about the DJ as a shaman and the DJ as a high priest and, and the music as the sacrament. And, and it really starts to get into all of that. And, and to a certain degree, uh, I think it's, you know, the book, the book is a, uh, is a testament to its time released originally in the 2000 when, when, when DJing and electronic music still wasn't really give, being given its due and people didn't really understand what was going on in the dance floor so they had to kind of spend that time really laying it out 
And the other element of it is, you know, as, as, as cheesy as it might sound or as much as like people might kind of like, uh, you know, say it's almost too earnest of a, of a descriptor of it all. It's, it's, you know, it's true. You can't, you can't deny it. These, uh, a good DJ will take you on a journey. Absolutely. And I think it's no coincidence that both this early 70s scene and the 90s scene were absolutely soaked in psychedelics, which is, you know, apocalypse in a can, a revelation in a box. You know, this is this is a way to access the subjective psychological state that somebody like St. Teresa of Avila spent decades meditating and praying, you know, just for a flash of what. A pretty cheap hit of acid kicking in the 60s, you know. I think obviously she's a little more prepared uh, to deal with it than than your average punter who just walks in and, and drops a tab. But nonetheless, this is a reminder that when you're talking about great music, you are talking about profound forces and dangerous forces and, and magical forces that can take you places and connect us with the infinite. So, yeah, it's been a fun chapter. Disco Roots from the book. Last night, a DJ saved my life, the history of the disc jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. And next time we'll be back, we'll be talking about the full-blown disco era. We're talking Studio 54, Cocaine, the Bee Gees, Saturday Night Fever, Disco Duck, The Village People, Frank Sinatra Goes Disco, the beauties and the horrors of the disco era. and Where it all goes upside down. <laughs> exactly, and, and takes dance music on its journey. So, Ryan Harkness, thanks so much. Thank you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate and Ryan will be back next week to discuss what happened when the rest of the world learned what had been happening in the underground discos of New York. At first it was glamorous, then it was ubiquitous, then it triggered the infamous Disco Sucks Backlash. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey, is published by Grove Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. Apply a little splash when your windshield's getting dirty. Just apply a little splash when your windshield's full of grime, bugs, dirt, and snow. Just use a little splash and be safe on the road. Splash, splash, splash. Apply a little splash when your windshield's getting dirty. Just apply a little splash. See safely on the road when you apply a little splash.